0: Hello, creeps. Welcome to the horror vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Friday the thirteenth, or the melancholy of Mrs. Voorhees. <laughs> Well, thanks for joining me out here on this camping trip, John. How's it how's it going?
1: You know what? It's uh it's just real it's just really nice to be out in nature, isn't it? You know, the peace and quiet, we can get away from everything. It's just lovely.
0: Yeah, you know, nature nature's pretty neat. It's it's good stuff. It's good. It's good to be away from Election news and coronavirus, and apparently my entire government coming down with the plague at the same time. So you know, it's really good to just kick back and roast some marshmallows.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We've got the open fire. We've got some cold beers. We don't have to don't have to think about anything too stressful.
0: Mmm, so good.
1: Ash, do you want to do want to you want to just turn on the radio so you can get some get some music?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I've got my, I've got my favorite station queued up here. Let me go ahead and turn that one on for you. This program was made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Go to Patreon.com/HorrorVanguard and get access to bonus
1: episodes and other exclusive content. Thank you. You'll forgive me if I don't stay around to watch. I just can't cope with the freak.
0: Mm, that was one of, my, one of my favorite good old camping tunes from, from back in the day. That one's, that one's a classic.
1: There's one, there was one thing I was wondering about, Ash. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um,
0: which is, do you know the story about this place? Oh, no, no. There's, there's a story about this innocuous campsite that I chose. So, apparently, like, back in the
1: 50s, this was a, a radio broadcaster's retreat center... Uh, and it was closed down when a whole bunch of them just went missing one night. And apparently, like, loads of them turned up dead.
0: Wow, I'm that's sure, horrible. We'll, we'll be fine, though. We'll be fine. I was going to say, that was like 70 years ago. I mean, like, whoever, whoever committed that string of grisly broadcast journalist murders was probably <laughs> a grandpa by now, if not dead. So, What's the worst that can happen? I mean, there's no way that like the government would take that that uh, uh, you know psycho killer and turn them into some kind of cyborg and then launch them into outer space. That that would never happen. So we're probably all right. We're almost definitely going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but whilst whilst we're here, you know, I look. I don't know about you. Maybe maybe you think this is a bit cliche, but you know, we got we got the campfire. Maybe we should talk.
0: About a scary movie. Ooh, that's a great idea. Do you, do you have Do you have one in mind while we're sitting here at? Um, I think this is this is Camp Camp uh, uh, Lake Crystal is the one that we're at today. I don't know if that brings any to mind. I uh, well, it's funny you should mention that because maybe we should talk about Friday the Thirteenth. But but John, it's only the fifth. Oh, God damn it ah. <laughs> welcome to our own one and only joke for today's episode
1: <laughs> which to be fair is better than most of the episodes usually uh, no
0: that's not fair that's not f- I shouldn't say that we're, we're, d- damn it we're good at this <laughs> <laughs> we we are good at telling campfire stories Joe <laughs> um let's yeah let's talk about Friday the 13th maybe maybe uh,
1: the the slasher movie, uh, the the spawn of a franchise behemoth. For 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 people who are who are maybe too young or who 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 have not investigated the history of horror in sufficient depth, Ash. What's Friday the Thirteenth about?
0: Well, thankfully, we're not talking about Jason Takes Manhattan slash Muppets Take Manhattan and or. Uh, Jason 10, Jason uh, Space Adventure, so this one's, this one's much better.
1: <laughs> I think what you meant to say, Ash, was we're not talking about those yet.
0: Yet. <laughs> uh, uh, J- Jason versus Star Wars is high on my list of movies I want to talk about. <laughs> it's always within the woods. It always has been. From campfire ghost stories to slasher cinema to the fear of the other... There have always been strange shapes out in the woods. But the fear runs deeper than haunted tales. It soaks into our bones and makes waking nightmares of a welcoming copse. We live in a society that does everything within its power to sever our connection to the natural world. As if the very fibers of our nerves were burned away, we lose the ability to connect to the mycelium, the roots, the things that rise up from the earth. A plastic world of artificial bonds, simulated interactions, and mediated terrors pours into our veins like embalming fluid. We are still breathing corpses. And then comes a figure so stark and terrifying we almost feel again. Jason Voorhees' machete-in-hand surges through. A standard-bearer for those wild places we have been denied. A monstrous force silent but screaming with the tragedies of the past a beast of our own design that has tread the nightmare path of history to remind us of the veritable sins that keep us disconnected from the natural world. And Jason never dies. Over one dozen movies under his blade and they still keep coming. This force always returns because we have yet to learn its lesson. A bloody teaching that tells us that fear dominates where healing is denied. That our answers lie in the dark and mysterious places we are told not to stray into, Lest our ill-conceived ventures rend flesh from bone and soul from body. Look to the woods and come to know those fearsome shapes. For they are there, and they come here to offer us their wisdom. Heed their warnings or don't, for like Jason, they will be back. Join us as we set round this campfire and discuss Friday the 13th. I
1: just have this vision. I just have this vision of a potential future horror vanguard episode, where it's just you doing that for ninety minutes, and then we, and,
0: and then we just wrap. <laughs> so, 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 what you, what you, are telling me is I need to do like a one man radio play. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that was so good. That was so good. And in a, in a way, it feels kind of it feels kind of strange to be only talking about Friday thirteenth now. I mean, we've been doing this for a while, and as you pointed out, it's it it is in terms of in terms of you know, the slasher movie, the slasher killer, like the Friday thirteenth films are like behemoths. They have they have set so much precedent, some of it being really bad and <laughs> some of it actually being really insightful and really interesting
0: um where do you want to where do you want to start with this i mean i mean i think you're right i think there's a charm to the friday the 13th franchise that other franchises don't have because it kind of friday the 13th jumped the shark you know and then we got friday the 13th but it's in space this time and friday the 13th manhattan edition and uh, you you know you you get to have a little bit of fun And, and for and for like you know friday the 13th started off as an indie movie you know that that was trying to find uh you know wide wide release and that's something that we see a lot in a lot of these horror movies that are just really like innovative and inspiring and weird um and so yeah i think that i think that spirit i mean even the fact that like you know friday the 13th is like a sprawling commercial megaplex of cinema now i, I yeah. think part of that spirit still endures right it's still J- jason voorhees is still scrappy and, yeah. and, you know, he'll pop up in Mortal Kombat, he'll fight Freddy to the death, you know, he'll, he'll show up in places <laughs> that M- Michael Myers in it is a bit too dignified. Yes, I think, that's, I think
1: that's really true. But, like, I was thinking about this when watching this film, and the thing that really struck me is that this, this film, in a way, is kind of a distillation of, of, of all of the tropes and ideas of the slasher killer film. Uh, and it has stripped out literally everything extraneous. There's not like an inch, there's not like a frame that's wasted, you know? Uh, the only things in here are those that you need. And that isn't to say that, like, the stuff that's in here is bad. I I, I honestly think uh, quite a bit of the acting is pretty good, uh, especially in our central cast of uh young hot kevin bacon and his young hot friends who who (laughs) exist who exist to have the worst summer job in the world um but there is a kind of like there is a kind of like aesthetic and formalist minimalism at work here right
0: yeah I, i i i completely agree and i think like this movie is smartly crafted in a sense that like i i believe these teens are teens they're acting like teens you know like everybody in this movie is very believable and it's it's a lot like the the last movie we talked about evil dead in that way you know like you're 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 casting you know mostly non-career non very famous experienced actor types and like you're getting a lot of mileage out of that right by like leaning the roles into natural skill sets that these people are going to be close to right like this movie doesn't have the like uh, a guy who's acted in a couple toothpaste commercials, who's now the doctor or, or something, you know, who has to <laughs> has to save the day because his patient escaped or, or something really ludicrous like that. Every, everything everything is really grounded, and that makes it an easier playing field.
1: Yes, I I think that's true, and I also think, in a way, that's what made this idea this uh this very particular iteration of the slasher killer so endlessly repeatable the very fact that like at its outset there wasn't and i don't mean this in a negative sense but there wasn't a whole lot here it allowed for future filmmakers and producers to basically kind of project whatever they wanted to onto jason so you can send him to space you can my favorite one is set like where would be where would he be most out of place i know manhattan that's <laughs> that's my favorite one but that's because in a way there's a kind of like
0: he's a cipher you know he
1: can stand in for whatever you want
0: yeah yeah i i i completely agree with that there's 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 something that's like more malleable about jason yeah. as as a slasher figure than there is about if freddy is very particular and has a very particular set of rules about what if freddy does and does not do and when and where it happens you know you could not you couldn't send freddy to space it would be a lot harder i i think <laughs> and it would be a lot more ridiculous to send freddy to space like like freddy you send freddy to new nightmare which is just absolutely incredible Yes, and then like Michael Myers is is haunting and somber, right? There's kind of a there's a seriousness to Michael Myers that there just isn't to Friday the Thirteenth, and like I I think that that really plays into like the types of sequels we get for this these movies. Yes, I would again, I would I would completely agree. I would completely
1: agree. Um, And again, this isn't to say that it's bad. I actually think there's a lot that's there's a kind of charm to this. Uh, very first version but it's it's also kind of like the pure form of what do you want for a slasher killer i mean on on the level of minimalism you even have this this is basically a film where the killer is kind of invisible they're not really there for like 98 percent of the film and even when the most famous Uh, part of this franchise turns up, he's never on screen. He's only on screen in the very final shots of the film. So there is something kind of interesting about this uh, kind of pioneering slasher killer who just isn't really around for most of this
0: movie. So I think that's something we can dig into a little bit because... That that is, is something about this particular style of slashing, right? Because I, I think Jason Jason Voorhees owes a lot to uh, Michael Myers on mm-hmm. many different levels. But I think one of those is that you know, like it, it, Michael Myers is also he's this shape, right? He's he's this formless haunting being, and and Jason Jason too has a lot of that. But I think they take two really interesting and different different approaches to depicting that that haunting presence and that kind of like preternatural existence right because in halloween you you get this figure that never moves but is somehow faster than everything around it is is always just there out of the corner of your eye you know like a a boogeyman yeah and then in friday the 13th it's just always pov but you you never see what is doing the looking and maybe and maybe
1: that's because this is a film that is in complete distinction to halloween this is a film that's much more kind of intimately connected to nature like nature is impersonal you know that's that's why it's always been a kind of source of potential horror whereas like halloween is is a horror of suburbia right it's it's very much not interested in nature it's not interested in anything that might happen outside of the city Oh yeah, 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 definitely. So you can have you can have a boogeyman in the suburbs, but when you get into nature, you get something that's a little bit more intangible and possibly even a little bit more hostile.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's I think that's a really good reading there that kind of explains like the difference and like just, just the the level of excitement and violence between these two films. Hmm. You know, like you get a, you get a lot, you get a, you get a larger array of weirder kills in Friday the Thirteenth, and I think that that partly ties into, you know, the the hostility of the natural setting and right the fact that like we're not as comfortable in nature, things go wrong quicker when you when you leave the yeah, comforts yeah. of your suburban couch.
1: Yes. Uh, so.
0: Um, go on. I was I was gonna move us on to the next section if you're ready? Yeah, 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 of course. So, so so we've been dancing around this uh for a bit. Um and I think I think it's time that we do the inevitable Friday the thirteenth and Halloween comparison session.
1: I mean, here's here's the thing though, right? One of these films one of those films was like critically lauded and pretty much universally Friday the thirteenth was like very dis it was dismissed it got a a, i i would say an at best muted critical reception
0: i mean if you look at um the rotten tomato scores today the original halloween has a 98 percent and the uh original friday the 13th i think is in the 60s so you've got you've got one that's nearly critically revered as being without flaw and you've got <laughs> you've got better than bad
1: yeah exactly and i think there's something interesting about that a lot of places a lot of outlets said oh this is just this is just a a, a carpenter ripoff." why do you think people were so keen to make that distinction to make that kind of argument hello kitty Oh that is scout making making her appearance.
0: I hope our listeners can hear the cat. We brought our cats camping with us because we have to go cat <laughs> camping. Returning our cats to their natural natural homes. Indeed, um, to, let, to let them frolic amongst the trees and and the bears and the the other creatures that they befriend. Um but I think I think that like the mm, I think there's there's a couple things going on here, right? Because if you have a surface level critique, yes, this is just a Halloween ripoff. You can just kind of write it off. Um, but it's it's only a Halloween ripoff on some kind of like surface aesthetic levels. That are by by the point that Friday the Thirteenth comes out, the slasher is starting to coalesce into a figure, right? We've had Black Christmas, we've had Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we've had Halloween. These things are starting to to come together and inform what today we would recognize as a slasher killer right this guy's got a mask on he's really tall he's wearing a working class maybe a slightly dated working class costume mm. you know he's he's butchering his enemies with simplistic weapons right some kind of knife some kind of machete you know, you know a chainsaw these type of devices and so like if you're just looking at these like basic generic signifiers you're gonna see a lot of halloween but i think i think that's kind of where it stops you know like i think it's it's using a lot of surface similarities and then going in completely different directions this is this is a different expression of what you can do with the slasher motif in terms of in terms of setting in terms of character in terms of motivation and I think that like that just that just gets lost in, in the discourse. And then like, yeah, sure, like technically John Carpenter's movie is, you know, better on a lot of technical levels because it's John Carpenter. Shrug. <laughs> but I people mean, people and, tend to lose and, the and forest on, for the trees.
1: I, I I could not agree more. And actually, I want to kind of extend the critique that you were making and talk about the fact that if you the critical reception that kind of dismissed them as basically the same is making a false equivalence that reveals the kind of cultural and imaginative like default setting of a lot of film critics. You know where is where is film criticism at home? It's at home in middle class bourgeois suburbia. Uh, and th- that means that the kind of monster there is infinitely recognizable. The attempt to kind of project that monstrosity out onto a film which is very concerned with uh with land with nature with uh working class relationships to a place, I think it has to be thought of in different terms
0: yeah I think I think I think I think what I'm going to get with my specific critique is that we lose a lot when we boil Friday the thirteenth down to less good Halloween. Yeah, absolutely there's there's so much discursive richness that we could have because I think and I think you know I'm not I'm not just giving a blanket statement here that ripoffs yeah you know, can be meaningfully critiqued separate from the thing they're ripping off. but I think there are there are striations of the ripoff, right there's there's transformers and then there's the asylum films transmorphers. Right. A, a movie that was ground out quickly to cash in on the Transformers Craze and trick somebody's grandpa into buying them the wrong DVD for their birthday. And then there's Friday the thirteenth and Halloween, movies that have inspiration. They're they're playing in generic spaces. They're they're using the the tools and the imageries laid out by these seminal works to explore new spaces. And whether or not those explorations are uh how or I should say rather how divergent those explorations are plays a lot into this but there's a lot of there's a lot more discussion to have here than i think people are willing to embrace
1: yeah i, I mean i think if you think if you think friday the 13th is just a halloween ripoff, you you kind
0: of don't understand what genre is yeah yeah i, th- I think i think that's 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 pretty harsh but i think it's also pretty accurate
1: well, because I think the, I think that argument rests upon the idea that like there is one like uh, example of what a generic, and I don't mean that in the pejorative sense, a, of what a generic text can and should be, and anything which isn't that is inevitably derivative, is is inevitably
0: kind oh, of yeah. ripping it off somehow, and that's just not how genre works. No, genre is is heavily indebted to a. Constant flux of remix and embrace and change, right? Well, I think I think the kind of
1: overall point that we're trying to make is that you can't just easily dismiss the slasher killer uh as a Halloween ripoff just because that would be convenient. Because that actually erases a lot of the complexity that can happen within a generically shaped space.
0: Oh yeah, and and I mean like to add to that. You know, again, I will bring up Jorge Luis Borges, who should always be brought up when discussing the slasher film. Yeah, absolutely. is is uh, the unbridled, uh, astounding wonder that is his essay Kafka and His Precursors, which is literally a page and a half long. Uh, what's your excuse for not having read that by now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of the best essays on uh, cultural criticism ever and it's like you, you, you read that and it really opens up a door for how we appreciate what culture and media are and what culture criticism can do. You know, when we see that, like, how how our relationship to genre and, and to styles of storytelling and to types of characters and all the nuts and bolts of media is is, you know, asynchronous and Mm -hmm. a chronological right like like the causality here sometimes flows backwards right like it isn't always cut and dry and i think that's part of the problem that we have with the slasher is because like this movie came out shortly after halloween and texas chainsaw massacre and this is this is like the birth of the slasher yeah you know like we are recording this episode in october of 2020 and by now a, a slasher killer is a baked in horror concept You know, like slasher horror cinema, you can go on like Amazon and like, you know, like scroll through the prime video thing and like to see like truckloads of amateur straight to streaming slasher movies. You know, uh, if this was 20 years ago, we'd be talking about all the like low budget shot on VHS direct to video slasher films. And, And that's what you get when you have something that's like so generically recognizable. Is that like over time, like it enters into ubiquity? It wouldn't shock me if, you know, barring cultural events that would destabilize the occurrence of these things, it wouldn't shock me if, like, you know, 60 years from now we have, like, Slasher O's cereal that pops up on Halloween in the same way that we have, like, uh, Count Chocula. Oh, no, that wouldn't shock me in the slightest. And, I mean, like, we we can already see that. I mean, like, you know, like, Jason is used to advertise so much in so many products. And I actually think that
1: yes there was a kind of uh, a period in which there was a formation of these tropes but i i think that jason voorhees and and friday the 13th is not just uh kind of replaying familiar tropes but is actually doing some interesting things that people are maybe too quick to dismiss both both michael myers uh well michael myers leatherface and jason are all sufficiently different enough to to explain why you know as the genre has developed
0: the slasher has become so kind of multifaceted and i i I think you're completely correct and i think that one of course i think you're completely correct (laughs) 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 that's the theme of our show um friendly agreement Um, But I think one one key area to visit in in terms of like the iconic constitutive parts of our slashers is is morality. Uh, Yes. And so I think when we talk about the morality of the slasher, right, we have a bit of a problem in front of us. Uh, because of these generic things that we've been talking about, the morality of the slasher is a very clearly understood and very baked-in thing, right? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Jason Voorhees, in this conventional reading, has has the morality of any given Republican senator. Uh, yeah, uh, J- the- Jason Voorhees is a Christian conservative. Right, yeah, J- 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 Jason Voorhees is running for Senate <laughs> <laughs> um in, in the Republican Party. And, like, we, we see that in, like, this this quasi hypocritical hatred of promiscuous sex and and patriarchal and uh, like use of patriarchal violence and things like that, you know, like that that's that's the conventional reading of the slasher. Yeah, would you would you have anything to add to the to the to that conventional interpretation of the slasher?
1: I think it's deeply limited. I think it's deeply limited. Um, and it doesn't really, it doesn't really offer a great deal in terms of explanatory power. There is some, there's some kind of, because I think, I think the big problem with it is there's a kind of ideological contradiction here between, uh, between the fact that, oh, this is a very puritanical, culturally regressive mode that's designed to police the libidinal desires and excesses of a of a no longer disciplined younger generation and you go okay fine so who's the audience for this is it like middle-aged conservatives who are like yes kids these days that are going to see friday the 13th no it's uh it's exactly this uh you know, uh, the the these these raunchy teenage teenagers, these darn kids with their with their Mary Jane and their guitar music, who absolutely <laughs> who who absolutely love these movies. So, if you go well, if there's a police function, if there's a kind of like police function within these films, it's not very good because it's not doing it's not doing what it's supposed to.
0: Right, and that, and that's the, the, the this this tilts us in t- t- to the next topic here. But you can complicate the morality of the slasher pretty pretty strongly. You can you can discover some new and exciting things when you say like okay, like yeah, you can definitely do a hang on. There's a lawnmower guy, lawnmower in uh, outside my flat right now. The mower. You thought your podcast was safe. Coming fall of 2021, two innocent (laughs) podcasters sat down to record an episode of a movie review show. Unbeknownst to them, they were sitting in a cursed flat, haunted by the spirit of the lawnmower. (laughs) Looks like this one is going to get cut pretty close okay he turned off his lawnmower <laughs> okay great <laughs> maybe um, I'll, yeah. maybe i'll leave that trailer in there but yeah no what, what i was saying is that like we, we we can complicate this right because because that that surface level uh that common morality that generic staple um it's perfectly defensible within the text it, it is a valid and arguable reading of of the slasher How, however like one of the beauties of doing you know, cultural criticism, media criticism, art criticism, uh, movie criticism—whatever you want to call what we do—is is we can we can take the text given to us and turn it on its head. We can flip it around. We can turn it inside out. We can see what happens when we play with it. And at the end of the day, if, if we if we're making arguments that are defensible using the text, we're still having fun. We're still playing the game. You know, we're still in yeah. it. And I think you can go so much further with texts like Friday the 13th than just stopping at the like oh it's uh it's a don't have sex it's a conservative moral eh. I I I have I have a take um,
1: fire away but but I was wondering you said you you know you can go kind of further with this but do you you want me to go first and i can i can throw i can throw my flaming hot take into the void and see
0: what you think (laughs) yeah yeah you know what you you're you're hyping up this take so let's uh let's start with you
1: okay so there is
0: quite a lot of anthropological research um (laughs) i'm i'm sorry but quite a lot of anthropological research i think that's the first time we've said that on this show and it's wonderful There's quite a lot of anthropological research
1: done into the idea of what Harvey Whitehouse calls "rites of terror." Um, uh, his, his research is is mostly based in um, tribal communities in Papua New Guinea, where, as part of the religious coming of age ceremonies for a, for a, for a particular village, what will happen is that all of the young people will go out um, one night into the darkness where they will be basically systematically terrified for uh, an entire night and the whole point is not only does it provide a kind of um a religious experience in some capacity it provides an individual's rite of passage to come back as a full member of the community but it also provides a um a kind of community cohesion because it isn't just that you've gone through like this physical pain and these this deprivation and this pain and this terror; it's that you've gone through it with other people. And so, he is. I don't. I don't know whether this is something that you would agree with, but like, if if we look at the fact that these kind of films were and still are like incredibly popular with uh, an often young. Uh, adolescent teenage demographic who would see it as a kind of rite of passage you know you go to see your first scary movie but the fact is you go and see it with somebody else and even in the context of the film right what is what is the whole point of them being there it's the summer before they all go off to college and so what Mm -hmm. do you do you go you go you go out away from the family home you spend some time out in the world working with your hands before you go back to take up your position as a kind of child of the middle classes and it is a rite of uh of of passage of of marking the movements through the different stages of a society so uh, in that in that case i would argue here's my non-moralistic take that both the contents of the film in terms of its plot and the film as object itself functions as a kind of rite of passage in that anthropological sense.
0: Ooh, ooh, I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> um, um, I, 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 do have, I do have a response, but I need one second because the mower is back. This time in The Mower 2, Down to Earth. Um yeah no i i think i think there's a lot of there's there's a lot of like bite to to the argument that you give right like like i don't know this anthropological research and and the second the second you give me a name a name like lord springwell did research in this tribe and i'm like hmm <laughs> yeah i mean i mean ov- obviously it comes with all of the of
1: all of the kind of usual um uh, caveats and criticisms of anthropology as as a field f- founded in basically Victorian racist pseudoscience. Yeah. And often use, the, u- the used the as sciences of empire, of, you know? Yeah.
0: Often used as a tool of, of, of colonialism. But, um, with, with, with that caveat said, like for, for our purposes and for what we're talking about, I, I think there's a lot of connective tissue, right? Because like, you know like a a lot of horror is marketed towards younger audiences right because and that's part of like the conventional market wisdom of who's going to go see a spoopy movie it's teens and young college kids and so like what what are key aspects of the lived experiences of these groups of people it's like okay well like you're having you know like your your first sexual encounters your first experiments with like drugs and alcohol your first time going off with your friends and kind of being outside of the purview of the family sphere there there, there's all this like liminal testing of boundaries and it's exploration and experimentation and there's a fear that comes with that and that fear is is layered across this entire cultural striation of the youth and and i think like i think that lends a lot of credence to the argument that you give that like you kind of whether you go to see friday the 13th or not you kind of pass through these similar cultural spaces
1: yeah absolutely um and and yeah, I completely I completely take the point you know about uh, anthropology more broadly, but like to say that they they're, they kind of serve a simple conservative repressive function is just it's just a bit limited. I mean, it's it's there, um, but really that that's a kind of far older moral about the limits of experimentation and like the fact that you have to leave to have these first kind of sexual experiences your first your first time getting really high in the woods with your friends until the <laughs> co- until until the cop comes by or the the town uh uh the the strange old man in town comes by to warn you that you're all gonna die um but those those are those are kind of like um so there is a conservative function but it's like those was a, that's a moral of, that it goes back to like don't wander off the path you know have you have your you know because you don't know what's in the woods, and that is that is a very ancient uh kind of narrative that we tell, so it's like yes, have have these kind of experiments, but like it isn't that we're going to punish you for them, it's just just that there are dangers implicit in them, and the thing is, you know that there are dangers implicit in them, and that's what kind of gives it the thrill
0: yeah and i think that, that that leads us on to another layer of like moral complexity we could do because there, there there's a meta sexuality to slasher films right oh because, yeah because you have you have that that kind of the slasher morality 101 where we talked about where it's it's the phallic uh force of the slasher killer penetrating the the bodies of these you know often teenage women young college women right and that perfectly defensible reading, I like, I'm not saying we need to throw that away. Certainly not. Like I said, I mean, this is like good old Carol Clover stuff. It's good. Yeah. Um, but like they're, they're, there's more complex sexualities going on at play here, especially with Friday the 13th, right? Mm-hmm. You know, because Friday, like there's a lot of queering we can do to, to Friday the 13th and the fact that this is a, a slasher killer who happens to be an old woman. You know, like this is this is it's now like a pretty standard horror trope that you unmask the killer. And it turns out the whole time it was grandma. But like, you know, during Friday the 13th, that's a bit that's a bit fresh. You know, this is one of the earlier explorations of that. And so you have you have this querying of the slasher killer, right, where you're blending these gendered streams together and you're kind of blurring the boundaries between, uh, you know, like these these heteronormative cisgendered frameworks and like on top of that like ostensibly yes this movie gives an argument where it's like now kids you you want you want to stay away from the devil's lettuce when you head out there into the woods and don't <laughs> don't be caught fornicating you know like like it's got it's got that reefer madness vibe to it but at the same time like you know back to what you were saying like who who are these movies marketed towards the, you know it's not the, this movie isn't marketed towards the the 64 year old boat dealership owner who, yeah, who, exactly. who's like wringing his hands about those teens and their loose morality. This film was marketed towards the teens with the loose morality, you know? Yes. Like it's about their fears and their experiences, right? So their fear of an older generation cracking the whip because of their, their cultural attitudes and their evolving belief systems. Like, like that, that adds this meta textual element to the story. And of course it's,
1: I think a lot of the time we miss or we forget the whole point of horror is attraction and repulsion. You know, we're attracted by the by the kind of um, potential freedom offered by youth. We're repulsed by the possibility of having to give it up and joining the kind of ranks of maturity and responsibility and putting away the 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 weed and the jazz records. Um,
0: <laughs> so that's a part of it as well. Yeah, absolutely, right? And and that, and that leads us into this interesting space of like how how the how these slasher killers get reclaimed, right? You know how 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 they go from being in these weird moral spaces and being like figures against sexuality to being like fan favorite icons and the the I, I think there's something really telling in the fact that, like, all Slasher Killer franchises are built around the uh, marketable and iconic image of the Slasher Killer. And yeah. not, uh, you know, on Friday the 13th, it's not it's not the, the Grandma Voorhees cinematic universe. It's not the Alice cinematic universe. It's not the Camp Crystal Lake cinematic universe. It's Jason's.
1: Yes, absolutely. Even if Jason only appears... For a fraction of a of a of a of a moment, really, at the very end of the film.
0: I think, with that said, though, um, I want I want my Grandma Voorhees movies <laughs> <laughs> again. Again, uh, Hollywood. Uh, my 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 phone is not ringing off the hook over here. I, I just every episode, I'm like, here's here's a check for a hundred million dollars that your studio could cash if only you had the will to give me a phone call.
1: I mean, it's because they're cowards. They're, they're cowards, and they—they they, we should say so.
0: <laughs> yes, it's it's entirely it's entirely Hollywood's cowardice, and not the fact that I'm literally a nobody <laughs> 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 and have never written a screenplay. I take that back. I, I wrote one screenplay for fun once. Um, maybe that will come become something one day. Who knows? But. I think I think I, we can jump now into some more complicated morality, right? Because because we, we can like talk about the politics and the morality of this film along yes, those absolutely. standardized lines, but I think we can complicate that even further because what we we talked earlier about like w- one of the big differences between Jason and Michael Myers is that Jason comes from the woods, he comes from rural communities, right? Camp Crystal Lake is situated in the hills and the sticks, you know. The lead up to this movie is a bunch of you know rednecks that are just like hey don't don't go fuck around in those woods a lot of people die (laughs) and and then a bunch of snotty suburbanite teens who are like okay crazy old man you know but like look look who was right and like there's, there's another layer of complication that we could bring into this and like ostensibly mrs Voorhees could be slaughtering literally everyone but she's only taking revenge on the camp that she ties to the death of her son you know, it is, it is a very, very specific thing. And the people in this community know better than to peel back the scab on that wound that can never heal. And so there's this there's this kind of like metamorality at play here where, where we have like, you know, as, as Carol Clover framed it, we have like the uh, petty bourgeoisie of the city uh, going into the countryside to enact revenge and then the countryside enacting revenge back on them you know we we have we have these these rich people who aren't from this community and who don't know its history and who have no uh foundational tether to it and they're like eh hey, we're we're going to revive your campground we're going to turn this into a profitable location instead of a backwoods forest and then mm. and then for their hubris they find punishment
1: um yes <laughs> yes <laughs> I, I i agree and and actually this is i think a lot of the early conversations in the film between you know, campers and people from the nearby town really reflect this because they, all all of them just say, eh, hey, maybe maybe you shouldn't do this. Maybe it's bad here. Maybe you should just go home. Maybe you should quit. The job isn't worth it. Um and I think I think that relationship between place and and class is really, really important.
0: Yeah, I mean like like did just look at the class. We have we have Enos, the truck driver, we have um crazy ralph you know like like we we have two characters who are very clearly coded as being working poor you know one one is quite literally a truck driver one someone who's been cast aside by by a world that doesn't offer them the medical care that they so desperately need but these people are correct you know yeah uh, both did nothing wrong yeah and like like crazy ralph is literally trying to warn these people you're all doomed he knows the truth he knows what happens at this place you know he knows not to go into this particular part of the woods because of the history that's there and like i, I think like th- th- this is something that the movie doesn't do as well as it could like i think there's a lot here that's underexplored but there's there there's a weight to land you know land isn't just place that's that's ready for development you know that, that's a capitalistic appraisal of what land is land is history You know, and especially in in places here like the United States where the land we stand upon is stolen, you know, like 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 the town you live in isn't the town you live in. It's it's a space that was that was forcibly taken from a peoples who were genocided. And Camp Crystal Lake is no exception to that. Right. Like 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 Jason resonates with with centuries of violence and of wounding that tethers itself to the land in in a lot of respects, these these campers, these kids who come in from the city who have no appraisal of these histories and these times, you know, even even when confronted with like the, the like the local working class people who, who maybe they're not like, I don't know, like I I don't know if Enos is like when he comes home from truck driving is he like an avid supporter of land back and an activist? The movie never gets into that, but like. <laughs> Um, maybe he is maybe he isn't a lot a lot of a lot of truck drivers are i don't know i'm not i'm not judging enos i just know he was correct in this movie um there's a like, there's a couple of, sorry go on oh i was i was, I was just gonna wrap up by saying that like land has history right there are people that are still connected to it and that are still fighting for it and that have relationships to it and it's when when we treat it like the campers do is just a source of capitalistic extraction you know, that that rubber band snaps back and we face the violence, you know, and, and the retribution and the anger that's soaked into the soil.
1: There's a couple of things I wanted to add to this because I, I really agree. Um, firstly, I think that argument goes some way to explaining the uh, Jason himself, right? Because you, you said right at the top of the show, there's always something in the woods. And I think that's a really, that's a really kind of, in the context of everything else you've just said, there's a there's a something there's something really revealing there about some of the most profound anxieties uh, at the kind of core of the American imperial project. You know, stolen land that you would that, that that was desperately and forcibly and violently taken, but at the same time, a land that is somehow always beyond the grasp of the conquered conqueror. You know, it can never be completely known. It can never be completely controlled. There's always something lurking in the woods. Um, and to be honest, I think that's a better explanation of Jason's kind of immortality than than anything else that, that we get given, right? This idea that he becomes a kind of mythic creature of uh, a force of nature, almost, in contrast to... Yeah in contrast to Michael Myers, who's very much a product of the kind of emptying of subjectivity instantiated by capitalist subjectivity in the suburbs. Secondly, the thing that the other thing that I wanted to talk about, um, based on what you said is we don't really know what happened to Mrs. Voorhees. We don't like she, she, she's from the town. She worked at the camp. Maybe goes through this colossal personal trauma. The camp closes. The town is clearly going through some sort of really serious uh, uh, economic struggles. A lot of people in the town seem to be just about getting by, and that's it. And so, th- this—the whole point is that you know these kind of kinds of like physical and emotional uh, traumas are not just individualized, right? They are directly connected to material conditions. The fact that 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 trauma could never heal is directly connected to the economics
0: at work in the text as well yeah and in fact like that is the only thing we do know about mrs Voorhees, right we all we know about her is that her son died out on the lake in that camp and she blames the camp counselors for his death that's all we have you know there's 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 nothing outside of her character or there's nothing beyond her character other than trauma Right, it's it's this pain, it's this incident, and I, I think there's something really profound about that that's lost in a lot of the discourse here. Right, like it's a campy pun intended horror movie hey. <laughs> about about teens getting stabulated and beheadings and all that fun stuff. But but underneath that, right, you know, like you know, the the motor that runs this film is is generational trauma and how trauma. You're absolutely right. It's never, it's hard to localize it, right? Like pain bleeds through a community, you know, yeah. like 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 the the pain that you feel will be picked up and shared by the people around you, and like when that's not acknowledged, it kind of metastasizes into adjacent, you know, when there when there's no better path for that to take, when there's when there's no way towards like, you know, like like turning this veritable soil of the black earth into something good. It, it it turns necrotic, right? It's this being that can't go away.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
0: I think we talked a lot about the points in B. <laughs> yeah. Do Do you want to move to six A? <laughs> let's uh,
1: Let's Let's wrap this up.
0: Let's do it. Let's Let's go. Let's go. Let's have some fun. We, we we're here to talk about Friday the 13th and you know, we're going to be talking about Jocasta.
1: Um, well, I, I, I think that this is, you know, really, we might know, we might claim that we know who wrote and directed this, but clearly this is based on, uh, that long rumored missing notebook of Sigmund Freud, uh, where he outlines the Jason complex, uh, that goes alongside the Oedipal
0: and Electra complexes. Um, I've always, I've always I, seen this movie as kind of like, if what would happen if Freud and Sasseur sat down to write their own horror movie? <laughs> <laughs> and then like, I don't know, like some, some naturalist came in there to do like, like last minute edits. Yeah. What if, what if a whole bunch of psychoanalysts went out into nature
1: did a lot of weed and decided to write a movie. <laughs> right. So, so, so
0: a quick, quick psychoanalysis one-on-one. We're all probably familiar with the Oedipal complex, uh, wherein the, the son must destroy the father in order to, to have sex with the mother, uh, the Electra complex, which is, uh, just the gendered inversion. It's the daughter who wants to sleep with the father. And then the, the lesser known, uh, uh kind of reverse angle of this, which is the Jocasta complex. Uh, Jocasta in the play was Oedipus's mother, and so Jocasta, the Jocasta complex is a mother who wants to have an illicit relationship with her son. Well, psychoanalysis one hundred and one for everybody back home. <laughs>
1: and that is what we get. Like we get that uh, literalized,
0: deeply, you know, what, deeply literalized. Mrs. Voorhees not not only enters into the body of her son, she becomes her son. Yeah. The, the, the space between the two collapses.
1: And in a way, that this is... I mean, l- l- let's kind of take the Lacanian point, right? Lacan's theory of development is, is the, the separation where you recognize uh, yourself as a distinct subject from the parent. Um, you know, it's the mirror. You recognize yourself in the mirror, and you recognize yourself as, as this but not that. Um, and here you see that you see that regress, you see that unfurling, and so suddenly, this is another reason why this is this is another reason why the the trauma is unhealable because the distinction between uh, Jason and his mother has vanished
0: completely. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I I, I think you're completely correct. There, there there can be no development here. There can be no growth. Right, this thing is fundamentally wounded. Um, yeah, yeah and it's and it's super effective as well
1: right the 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 scenes with uh, mrs woolhis are just deeply unsettling because there's a degree to which uh the pain and trauma is kind of recognizable and and comprehensible and you know she's deeply sympathetic as a character but then when you start to kind of peel back the layers and and see the extent to which her subjectivity as a kind of distinct separate self from what she's lost has just vanished it's really effective it's super
0: unsettling uh, yeah and i i think that this this does what the great hallmarks of horror do and you have in your villain something incredibly relatable you know like the the tragedy that is a parent who must bury their child is is something that is like there, there's an unshakable terror to that. There, there, there's just boundless agony in that very concept. It's it's nightmarish in and of itself. But the, the great works of horror take these these really relatable sorrows and their villains and then they they twist them a little bit. They break them. And so you have yes. you, you have here like a, a mother who's lost her son and then through through tragedy and pain becomes her son. And and there's something just really unsettling about that. <laughs> Thanks, Sassour. Well, I mean, the other way that we can read
1: this is through mourning and melancholia, right?
0: Mm, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, Freud, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: F- f- Freud's Freud's famous 1918 uh, essay, mourning uh, the loss, the conscious acknowledgement of the loss of the love object. To put it in the Freudian terms, a as as Freud would put it, an entirely um, healthy necessary process loss is is an inevitable part of the human condition mourning therefore is not something to be kind of minimized it's something to be processed it's something to that we that we will all have to kind of deal with at some point however if that loss is not is not a kind of loss that is uh, experienced and processed through the conscious mind in freud's kind of schema then it becomes melancholic it becomes a kind of attitude that permeates every aspect of the self, um, and it's very notable that he considered melancholia a pathology. It was something that it was a it was a kind of like uh, a a a a kind of painful but necessary process. A kind of a, a base uh, shared fact of all humanity is is that we experience loss, and so for and so that kind of. Uh, inevitable process gets disrupted, and then something kind of very damaging happens to the subject. And this is melancholia ratcheted up and kind of entwined with this dissolution of that boundary between self and other. So the love object is not is not is not only not acknowledged as lost. The loss itself is not really acknowledged because she never admits that you know she uses jason's voice Mm -hmm. jason and her are are the same person so there's no way that that mourning could actually happen there's no way that that kind of painful necessary process of kind of dealing with loss could ever really happen it was always
0: going to turn into a pathology i think i think we can get dragged in even one layer deeper to that right because like is Jason lost and what kind of loss has Jason experienced, right? Because we have, we have the, uh, the false awakening at the end, right? Where, where, where Alice, you know, after beheading, uh, Mrs. Voorhees, she, she floats out on a canoe into the middle of the lake and awakens when, when young Jason, you know, zombified and undead and mutilated rises from the water and drags her down to the depths. And then she wakes up again in a hospital bed you know lamenting that you know Jason's he's still out there right you know th- yeah. the threat hasn't gone away and like y- yeah sure like surface, surface level reading of that is uh, we have ourselves here a cliffhanger tr- ending that sets us up for the sequel um but within within the text of this movie like we're we're experiencing the fact that like we're getting dragged in to Mrs. Voorhees' condition Right For us, just like yes. for her, Jason is dead and gone and also alive and with us every moment. And just like yep. her, Jason is starting to fill our presence, right? He's already in our dreams, you know? And like, we're sharing her condition by the end of the movie and we don't even know that's what's happening to us.
1: And maybe this is a way of explaining the kind of proliferations of Jason's after the fact, Right. What is it? It's an attempt. It's an attempt to uh, articulate the the lost object. Uh, And I really like that reading. I really like that way of thinking about the ending as that we become kind of irretrievably bound up within Jason. And you can see from the history of horror cinema that that's precisely what's happened.
0: Right, yeah. J- Jason has become this this haunting presence that that permeates our video games and our media and our comic books and every crossover potential that Jason can get, he takes. You know, we are we are all Mrs. Voorhees at this point, haunted and possessed by the ghost of this child.
1: Yep. It was always going to end in that kind of pathology.
0: Well. I think this has been one of the best camping trips I've ever gone on. <laughs> An eye for one. It's been Oh go on.
1: It's been no, I think easily one of our best. We should do this
0: every year around this time. Yes, we should we should come here to the shore of Camp Crystal Lake every year to talk about these movies. Nothing, (laughs) nothing could happen that would be bad if we keep doing this. (laughs) Wait, did you hear that? I'm sure, I'm sure it wasn't anything (laughs) worth, worth looking into or considering at all. Hey, why don't you stay here? I'm just going to wander off down to the archery
1: range to see what the noise was.
0: You know, you know what, while you're doing that, I'm going to go see if it wasn't something rattling around these rickety old cabins. That are uh, 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 really insecure and full of like boards with nails and stuff. I, it's probably cool. nothing, but I might as well.
1: Hey, make sure you leave that torch behind. You don't want to let li- you don't want to lose it.
0: You know, uh, you, when you, when you're camping, it's really important to stay hydrated. And if I if I carry around this torch or, or really any of these supplies, I'm just gonna get fatigued a lot quicker.
1: Yeah, that's why I'm leaving my Bowie knife and my cell phone here.
0: Oh, you know, I didn't even bring my cell phone. Yeah, it's a really good idea to oh, leave it behind. It's just, it's just, it's, just, it's uh... I, I pack light, you know, I'm, I'm what they call a survivalist. I'm, I'm trying to live with nature, so I have brought nothing, and I am completely unprepared. All right, well, uh... See ya <laughs> Yeah yeah we'll, we'll, we'll meet back up And you know if we don't meet back up I'm sure I'm sure We, we both just made it back home Alright so I'll, I'll call you In like a week or something It'll be fine
1: <laughs> oh, That's how to end